Good morning, Bethel. As we come to God's word here together this morning, let's bow our hearts and prepare to hear from the Lord. Gracious and merciful God, would you lead us today? Would you lead us today as we look into your word? Would you encourage us? Would you help us? Would you give us clarity? There is deep truth that we're looking at today and we need to really hear from you. Holy Spirit, illuminate the truth of your word and let the words of my mouth and then the reflections, meditations of each of our hearts really be acceptable and pleasing before you today. In Jesus' name, amen. How many recognize this picture? If we could do it through this, the screen, a show of hands right here, raise your hand. It's, it's the famous Leaning Tower of Pisa built in Italy. It was actually began construction in 1173. And almost as quickly as it was started in construction, it began to tilt. See, the problem was the ground underneath the tower where it was built was actually kind of quite soft, um, sinking soil. And the foundation that they built for that to be a 50 meter high tower was, was probably not even as deep as the foundation of your house basement is. And so it began to tilt and tilt and tilt until finally in 1990, the Italian government, when it was on the brink of collapse, put together this massive engineering project to rescue the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And the way they did this is they, they began by digging out from underneath of it all of this, this sinking soft soil, and then they dug way down, five times or more deeper than that original foundation, and built these massive, strong, deep, concrete foundation pillars for the tower to lean on. And it now stands and is able to stand, hopefully for the next 800 more years. In many ways, this, this book of Romans that we have been studying through, and in particular the section we find ourselves in the last couple of weeks and today, is, is like that sort of massive engineering project on our souls. God, through his word, is, is going to be digging away this soft, shaky soil, the sinking sand in our souls, and he is boring way, way, way down to establish these deep, rock-solid, unshakable pillars of foundation for our souls to hold us up. Today, this continues. And the flow of thought that we find ourselves here in chapter 9 of the book of Romans is speaking to another sort of question, wrestling, wondering, fear that comes to mind after all that we have heard and seen so far in this letter. Given all that we have seen about how the world is the world is broken, we are broken, we live in this struggling, aching, waiting, wrestling spot where we are saved by Jesus, absolutely, and yet we are waiting for Jesus to come back and get us. Does this mean, here's, here's the question that comes to our text, does this mean that God's plan has failed? 
Are, are we waiting right here and right now in the struggling, in the wrestling, in the wondering, in the doubting, because God's plan of salvation for the world, because God's plan of salvation for individuals like you and I has hit a roadblock. Is that, is that why we're waiting? Has God's plan for the world, has God's plan for you and I failed? Is it going to fail? Is that why we are where we are? Is, is the waiting and the struggling right now, I don't know, in your or marriage, a sign that you should you know, get thinking that God's just not really going to help you work through whatever it is you're working through. And you should just kind of give up on your spouse. Is the, the waiting or the wrestling in your health a sign that God's plan for you isn't going to pan out? Is the waiting or the stumbling something that should make you start worrying and fearing and, and maybe wondering, God's maybe not even really there is he even really real? Is he even really helping me out? Can I, should I, really trust God's plan? Can I really trust God? Can I really trust God's plan for the world? Can I really trust God's plan for my life? Our text today, dear friends, is going to dig deep down into the ground, and it is going to fill in some incredible foundations to help hold us up in the midst of the struggling, the stumbling, the wrestling, and the wondering, can we really trust God and his plan? In fact, here's the big idea that, that I want all of us to see come out of God's word and take away today. It is this, God's plan has never failed, so you can trust him no matter what. Dear friend at home, whatever you are walking through and living in right now, I want you to know God's word is going to declare to us God's plan has never failed. And so you can trust him no matter what. Here's our first point today. If you're taking notes, following along, preparing for small group, here's the first point. God has a plan. God has a plan. We see this begin in verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Spirit. Paul says, I have something that I need to tell you. It's hitting me so hard. It's hard for me to even say. It's going to be hard for you even to believe. But you need to know this is really coming from my inner being. This is really true. This is, this is legit. Three times he says this kind of try and reassure us. I, I, I speak the truth. I am not lying. The Spirit confirms it. What I'm about to say really comes from my heart. Verse 2, I have great sorrow and anguish, unceasing anguish in my heart, Paul says. Why? Well, he's about to tell us it's because of his, his people, because of his his brothers and sisters ethnically, his family, his extended family, which is Jewish. If you remember, Paul was a Jew, an Israelite, raised in the strictest, strictest of um, obedience and adherence as an Israelite, as a Jew. And the Jews are, are God's chosen people. But, here's what's ripping them apart, They've missed God's plan. Verse 3, 
For I could wish that I myself were cursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. He says, I know God has a plan. He started his plan by choosing a nation. Of all the nations of all the earth, of all the peoples of all the land, God chose a people, the Jews, the Israelites. He called them his adopted sons, showed them divine glory, he says, made the covenant through Abraham with them, gave them the law through Moses, gave them the temple in Jerusalem for them to worship God, made the promises through the prophets. This was the people of the patriarchs. That's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God, from every angle of this whole plan, was pointing ahead to a particular moment, a particular place, a particular person who was the culmination of the whole plan. Jesus. You see verse 5. The end of this, Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Jesus is the pinnacle. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the, the, the end of every breadcrumb trail, the fulfillment of every promise, the answer to every mystery. And Paul is like, my gut is being ripped up inside this unceasing anguish because my people, God's chosen people, the Israelites, have missed the point of God's plan. They've missed Christ. They were the ones who killed Christ. They are trying to crush the church and stop people from talking about Jesus. And it just rips me apart so much that I, I wish I could be a curse just so they could come to see who Jesus really is. And so here's the question. It's ripping him up that God's people do not see God's Son. They missed the point of God's plan. So, does that mean God's plan failed? Does that mean God's plan failed? If, if God's chosen people missed the point of God's set-out plan and missed His Son, does that mean God's plan has failed? I mean, if, if you hire someone to help you with your retirement savings investments, and so they sit down with you, map out this whole plan for over the next 10 years, if you invest this much, here's the return you're going to get, and so it sounds wonderful, and you're like, oh, great. You give them that money, they invest it into the plan, and then 10 years later, you go and get a report about that plan that was supposed to reap you know, such and such dividends, and then you look at it and it has earned absolutely nothing. There is not a penny of increase that has come to your investment. When you sit down with that investor again, are you going to say, looks like your plan worked great, here's some more of my money? Are you gonna trust him with some more of your savings for your upcoming retirement? 
Does it make you want to give them more savings and trust them with even more? If, if God's plan appears to have failed, does that mean you and I should stop trusting God? Should. Should I begin doubting when my prayers aren't being answered right now or fear the unknown afterlife that is to come or worry about my deteriorating body because I'm in the waiting and I look at God's plan and feel like it failed and so I don't know if I can really trust God with anything if he can't follow through on his plan. Oh no, dear friends, that is not all the point that we see coming out of God's word. God here is going to begin shoveling away the soft, shaky, sinking sand that brings up these questions and dig down deep to give us a foundation here. God has a plan. And not only does God have a plan, God has a meticulous plan. Verse 6 It is not as though God's word has failed. Do not let yourself start thinking the waiting, the struggles, the brokenness, or even the fact that all of these people miss Jesus. Do not let that lead you down the road that would think God's plan has failed. Oh no, dear friends. It is not as though God's word had failed. God has a plan. I remember as a 20-year-old guy, fairly early on in my faith on a mission trip in Tanzania, sitting down and chatting with one of our leaders, a guy who's actually become one of my best friends. His name is Kelly. And we were talking about some of these like big theology God questions, and we got to the topic of God's control. God's control, and, and to what depth does God have control? The, the, the sovereignty of God is another kind of big word way you may have heard this articulated. How deep, how far down, how meticulous does God control the world and individual, our very lives? And I remember asking and talking to Kelly about this and, and saying to him with this like fire in my gut and angst in my heart that I was like, I just cannot understand how anyone would say or possibly think that God controls every single little detail of every part of our lives be, because it's just a dreadful thought in my mind, is what I said. If God meticulously controls every detail, doesn't that just mean we're robots? Doesn't that just mean our lives are already dictated before us and what difference is it even making and where is the freedom and where is the love? And I could not wrap my mind around this. It felt so bitter to me. But can I, can I tell you, friends, over the years since then, Oh, I have come to see that the, the depths that we are going to dig down into through God's word, the glorious truth that we are going to see about God's meticulous plan has, has transformed in my heart. And I hope for you it does or has already to be not bitter and upsetting and angry, but the sweetest, most precious, most treasured, most beautiful of truths that holds us up. 
God has a meticulous plan. Paul is going to show us this today. Verse 6 continues into verse 7. For not all who descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. First, God has a people, Israel. But, but not everyone born genetically from the line of Abraham is part of God's people. Just because you could find on your family tree that Abraham is going way, way, way back there doesn't matter. Verse 7 continues, On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Do you remember the Bible story that's being talked about here? The father, the patriarch, the founder of the Israelites, his name was Abraham. And God came to Abraham and made him a promise when he was pretty old and said, I am going to give you a son. And then you are going to have a son and the son is going to bless the nations and you're going to have more offspring than all the stars in the sky. Well, Abraham did have a son, miraculously by God. It was 25 years after that promise came. He was 100 years old when his son, whose name was Isaac, was born. And Isaac was not only an answer to God's promise for Abraham, but Isaac was an example for us to see how God's plan works. See, what Paul is saying here is, I want to help you understand the meticulous plan of God so you get it clear. And, and one of the things you need to know is that God's plan is based upon children of the promise. Verse 9, for this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. God's meticulous plan was never about genetic family trees. It was about children of the promise. Verse 10, not only that, but Rebecca's children, so th this is now talking about a next story. Rebecca was married to Isaac when he was grown up. Okay, This is Isaac's fully grown up now wife. Rebecca and Isaac had one and the same father, our father Isaac, Rebecca's children. This is another Bible story here talking now about Isaac and Rebecca's children. And they found out they were going to have twins, Rebecca and Isaac were. And it says, chapter 9, verse 11, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Here again, Paul is quoting another Old Testament reference. And just like Abraham and Isaac, Paul is bringing us back to this story to zero us in and see how God's meticulous plan of salvation works. God's meticulous plan is about a promise. It's not about genetics. God's meticulous plan is about God's call. 
his election, not our works. Before the twins had done anything, it said there, in order that God's purposes and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, it says there. You and I and God's plan is not played out by what we do. It's by God's choice. When, when you have biological children, you don't choose your children. But if you picture, think of adoption, and I know many in our congregation have walked this road of adoption. After you go through all the process of like application and vetting and everything to potentially become an adoptive parent, and you get approved by that, there comes this stage where either you travel overseas and go to an orphanage or you work with a social worker with like Children's Aid Society or whatever, and, and you are presented before you with, with a, a number of profiles of children and, and you are asked the question, will you choose to adopt this child? And, and as an adoptive parent, you will come to this point where you will say, I choose this one. I choose this one. She will be our daughter. And it's not because that little girl has proven her worth, has earned her keep, has shown she is the best one in all the world, or, or because all of the others seem to be a mess compared to this one. No, it is a choice apart from anything she has done that you say, I choose you. Paul says, we are learning about God's plan here. God's saving plan isn't based on looking for the really, really good person who has it really, really all together, who is, who is you know, really noble and righteous or religious or whatever. God's plan is also not based on ignoring the really, really messed up person who has gone really, really far awry and who is really, really too far gone. No, no, no. God's plan, his meticulous plan, is based on his promise and his call. And friends, we're digging deep here, okay? Keep following. We are going deep to get some strong foundations to stand upon. Verse 14 then says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? I, I mean, at this point, that is the question that is jumping out of our minds, isn't it? Some of you are at home right now and you're like just waiting to jump off your seat and ask that very question at this point. This isn't fair. How could God choose that one person? That's not just. That's unjust, right? Not at all, it says. Oh, God is very just. He is oh so just. It's, it's interesting because when we ask that question, we actually put a really funny kind of slant on it. I mean, what does justice mean? Ju justice means giving someone what they rightfully deserve, right? Especially when it comes to punishment. Justice is upheld if a murderer is pen punished, penalized for what they have done and sent to prison, right? That's, that's justice. Injustice 
is, is when a guilty murderer doesn't get what they deserve and is let off scot-free. That, that's injustice. We have this funny way, though, of flipping this very question. Because when we hear the story of Jacob and Esau, we are like, man, that's so unjust. Why did God not rescue Esau too? Why only Jacob? Why did he leave Esau out? Here's the problem, friends. That's not the injustice in this story. We are asking the wrong question when we ask that question. See, Jacob and Esau both deserved to not get the favor of God. They were both the fruit of sin and had the taint of sin upon their lives. They were both guilty before a perfect God. Here's the question. Why did God let Jacob off? Why did God not give Jacob the punishment he deserved? That's the question that we should be asking. That's the injustice taken to ourselves, we want to ask, God, why would you not choose that person whom we love to go to heaven? That's so unjust that you wouldn't choose that person. But that's the wrong question, friends. Here's the question we should ask that, oh, how rarely, if ever, do we ask. How? How could God allow any of us who deserve punishment, to not go to hell? How could God let any of us off when we have done what deserves of punishment because of our sin? That's the question. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God has a meticulous plan. And what we're seeing here, he brings up this next story, is that God's plan involves his right to have mercy on whomever he wants. And it is not unjust for God to have mercy on whomever he wants because God sent his son, Jesus, to take the penalty that is deserved. If you want to go back and dig into that, go back to chapter 3 to really unpack that whole point. Get a refresher on that. But it is not unjust for God to extend mercy. He can have mercy on whoever he chooses. Verse 16, it does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Paul goes to one more Old Testament story here to say, let me help you understand how God's plan, God's meticulous plan works. Let's keep digging out that soft sinking soil so we can go deep, so you can have a deep foundation to hold you up. The way God has worked in Israel has taught us about his 
plan. The way God has worked with Abraham and Isaac has helped us to understand more about God's plan. The way God has worked with Jacob and Esau helps us to understand more about God's plan. And here finally, Moses and Pharaoh helps us to understand about God's meticulous plan. Moses is the one who led the people of Israel out of slavery under the Egyptians and Pharaoh in Exodus, the book of Exodus. Moses, by God's direction, goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no way. And as a result of Pharaoh's resistance, these Ten plagues God brings upon the people, culminating in the tenth plague, which is all the people of Israel's firstborns die, and all the people, so all the people of Egypt's firstborn die, and all of Israel is passed over and protected. Pharaoh, in his grief, says, Fine, leave. They leave out into the wilderness and are released. And then Pharaoh changes his mind, comes chasing after them. God opens up the walls of the Red Sea. They walk across the Red Sea on dry ground. And God brings down the walls of the water, crashing upon Pharaoh and all of his soldiers, rescuing God's people forever from slavery to Egypt. This Exodus story became, without a doubt, the single most retold story amongst the people of God for centuries to come. It is, it is mentioned over and over and over and over again in the scriptures, recounted again and again. The world, the whole world heard about the God of Israel who could part the sea and they could walk through on dry ground and who took out the mightiest of armies with Pharaoh. Understanding the rest of what Jesus would come to do is all based upon and fulfillment to so many of these pieces. Jesus came to free us from an even greater exodus with a greater exodus by freeing us from a greater slavery to sin. Jesus is our great Passover lamb. Jesus went into the desert for 40 days and fought against the devil in, in a way that was better and, and greater than the people of Israel who were trapped in the wilderness for 40 years. And this whole story is helping us to understand how God's meticulous plan works. God has Mercy on whom he wants. And God hardens who he wants. God raised up Pharaoh for a purpose. If Pharaoh, just play this out, if Pharaoh didn't object and let the people go immediately, then the, the powerful, mighty hand of God and the plagues would not have happened. If Pharaoh didn't object, then the walls of water would not have come up. If Pharaoh didn't object, then, then all these things that we see and how it points even ahead to Jesus would not have happened. Pharaoh was raised up for a purpose to show how God's meticulous plan works. And at this point in particular, it starts to be like, Whoa, 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 what do you mean? What do you mean? And the, the backs really start to get up at this point in our text. And Paul knows this. One of you will say to me, verse 19, then why does God still blame us? For who can resist his will? That was at the heart of my question with Kelly 
almost 20 years ago in Tanzania. How could God do this? And I could point to and point out, and I, I think it's worth noting that if you go back and read the Exodus account of those 10 plagues, after every single one of those instances where a plague came, it explicitly says in the scriptures about Pharaoh's heart was hard or hardening every single time. And it's worth noting that, that half of those times it talks about how Pharaoh's heart was hard. And then the other five of the 10, it talks about how God hardened his heart. And the point there is to say that, that God does not give that desire to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was already joyfully inclined to try and destroy the people of God and have nothing to do with God. That's already Pharaoh's desire. God is not doing anything against what Pharaoh already himself wanted and desired. But he was hardening and bringing about circumstances that would make Pharaoh's desire all that much more amplified. And that is, that is true and worth noting. But when I was getting all worked up with my friend Kelly there, why could God do this? How could God do this? What is wrong? This feels so not right. Kelly wisely, calmly, and graciously said this to me, and I'll never forget it. Alan, I hear what you're saying, but what does God's word say? I hear your questions, and your wrestlings, and your uncertainty, but what does God's word say? Look with me at verse 20. Because Paul follows that very same line. He doesn't get into all of those arguments that are there to be made about Pharaoh and his own heart hardening. Look what he says in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of some lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? There, there may be some answers to these many questions. And we may in fact be drawn into all kinds of debates trying to wrap our minds around the depths that we are digging into today. But here, in this chapter, we are confronted with a sobering question, friends. Who are you and I compared to God? It reminds me of after, you know, all the heartache and wrestling that Job goes through and then he, he just like unloads asking and wondering and wrestling and crying out to God with all of these questions. And then, and then in Job 38 and 39, Job's res the response after patiently enduring with all these questions that God, that Job is pounding against God's chest, then God finally says to Job, verse 39, 
Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Job 8, 38, verse 4. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know, don't you, Job? Chapter 8, verse 38, verse 5. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown dawn its place? Verse 12. Have the gates of death been shown to you? Verse 17. Have you ever entered the storehouses of snow? Job, verse 22. Can you raise the voice of the clouds? Job, verse 34. Do you send lightning bolts on their way? Verse 35. And for two whole chapters, God just says to Job, do you know who I am? I am? Friends, I'll be completely honest. There are a ton of questions that come up from this truth that we're looking at today, these verses that we are reading. The depths that we are mining, I do not begin to fully understand them, to wrap my mind around them. And frankly, anyone who tells you they can, you should probably be pretty weary of. But here is what I do know, though, friends. God's word before us is clear. In fact, God's word before us is is crystal clear. God has a meticulous plan. And it has not failed, not even in the least. I don't get it all. I I don't get all of God. I don't fully understand or comprehend his ways. Frankly, I can't recall who said this, but... If you really understand God, is that any God at all? Do you want a God you can fully wrap your mind around? A God you can fully wrap your mind around is no God at all. Here is what we do see and what we do know. God is good. And he has shown us, he is for us. He sent his own son into the world to die for us. He gives us his spirit to help him follow after him and the promise of inheritance. His son and his spirit intercede on our behalf before the very throne of God. This doctrine no longer is a source of upset or angst or worry or frustration or bitterness. This is a doctrine, a truth that digs so deep that establishes such rich foundations because it tells us that God is so in control of every last thing, and he is good in everything that he does, and he is for us, and there is no doubt about any of this. Oh, there could not be sweeter or richer truths than what we see coming out of here to hold us up in the midst of the waiting, the wrestling, and the struggling. God has a plan. God has a meticulous plan. And really briefly and quickly here, finally, God has a meticulous plan with a grander purpose than you can ever imagine. Look at verse 22. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? 
Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. What if God, friends, has a meticulous plan that is working out to accomplish something bigger than your mind could ever comprehend, grander and more glorious than you could ever come up with or dream of? We, as little specks on this little planet, in this little solar system, rotating around this little star, in this little galaxy, in this little corner of the universe, who are we to presume that we know what is best, that we know the greatest, grandest, and glorious plan that there could be? What if God has a plan where he is working out to show his great glory and majestic mercy and grace in a way that would be so far beyond our little minds to understand. Oh, what sweet good news we have in this text because that's exactly what we see God is doing. We may not fully wrap our minds around it, but God here is leading us to show us to see that we have a foundation that is so deep to hold us up no matter what we go through. This is exactly what he has said going all the way back to the prophets and is coming right out of this truth. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Our God has a plan to rescue, gloriously lavishing his mercy and grace. Men and women, young and old from every people, nation, tribe, and tongue, people who do not deserve it, people who were not his people, people who were not his beloved, who are going to be called his people and who are going to be treasured as his loved, chosen children, sons of the living God. Oh, the glorious, meticulous plan of God the God who is good, the God who is for us, the God who sent Jesus to rescue us, the God whom we call out to and trust. And so even though we struggle, even though we feel the waiting, even though we face the brokenness, even though we wonder, take heart today, dear friends. Let the truth of God's word digging so deep strengthen and lift you up no matter what. God's plan has not failed, and so you can trust him today.